As a quick note, the views and opinions expressed by the participants in this show do not reflect those of the Naval Institute, DOD, or the federal government. Thank you. All right, welcome to the Armchair Commanders podcast. My name is John. I'm Jack. And this week we are joined by a very special guest. We have Reed Beeman with us, who... Uh, if you're not familiar with, works in the comic book world and whose most recent project is a graphic novel about the First World War called The Stretch Bearers. Reed, welcome, if you'd like to say hi and introduce yourself. Hi. Um, Thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Um, And I'm still getting used to being on podcasts. So, um, But yeah, like John said, I'm a comic book artist um, out of Lexington, South Carolina, um, the Stretcher Bears recently came out um, in April of 2002, um, and it's actually been pretty good success. We got bronze recently from Forward Review, so I'm very happy about that. I co-wrote uh, the book with my twin brother, Ryan, um, and we're working on a bunch of new comics projects I can't really talk about right now, but definitely stay tuned if you're interested in comics, and not just about war comics too but like superheroes and horror and stuff nice and uh congratulations on the award thank you you know it's it's kind of interesting i uh i came across your graphic novel because um a i'm a i'm a big comic book guy myself but i follow and this shows what kind of a nerd I am. I followed the Naval Institute on Instagram <laughs> and they're like, check out this book. We just sponsored. I'm like, what? Yeah. A lot of people didn't, I didn't realize that, but the Naval Institute, they had um, basically like a sister company, if you want to call it called dead reckoning. And that was the publishing company that I published through. And they're kind of like, over or under i should say the naval institute so because the naval institute wanted to branch out and do like comic books and graphic novels and take some like french version of war comics and translate them over to english and like publish them as well so they they actually started before covid well before covid and um i actually met the editor gary um back god years ago and he just stumbled upon my work and he loved what i was drawing i I think i drew like a sergeant rock um oh nice yeah he he loved it and he was like hey man if you got any any ideas please pitch it to me i would love to you know see what you had and anything you want to do we're like open to it it had to be historically accurate and deal with a major war conflict of course um since it is the naval institute it didn't specifically have to be about the navy which was great um but yeah it's just it kind of just looked up and like luck kind of like happened at a comic convention and you know it developed from there and you know we were able to produce the comic with them and and they they were wonderful to work with i mean i could not ask for a better publisher really um to go with because working with a publisher like the naval institute is completely different than like if i say work for marvel or dc because since they are like more of a a book publisher they have a wider outreach so it's like the book didn't own or the comic didn't really just go to comic shops it actually went to like bookstores not only in america but it went to bookstores over in the united kingdom and france 
Um, and I know they've made it all the way to Germany now. So like we basically nice. like started slowly reaching our way out across the globe and, you know, of course it's on Amazon. So like with it being right. on Amazon, it's available to like anybody, but I'm kind of like, if you have a local bookstore, go support them or a local comic shop. Cause like, you know, they need the money more than like Amazon does. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I'm ashamed to say, but I got, I got your book off of Amazon. Oh no, because, don't, you know, the, the two yeah. day shipping. Oh, know. and I mean, you can't, you can't beat that. I mean, the only difference would be, is that like the Naval Institute, uh, they generally do like free shipping and a percentage off around the holidays, which is a really oh. good time to buy. I know, but like if you don't have that and if, if it's too, too late in the year, I tell a lot of people to go to Amazon anyway, because like it, it's so cheap to like buy the book. I know that sounds bad, but it's also like the shipping because like shipping's so expensive now. Right. I mean, like everything's going up and like the cost of stamps, it's crazy. You so know, you're not spoiled. buying from Amazon. You know, you're spoiled when you see you have to pay like, you know, when something isn't a prime item on Amazon and you have to pay like $2 in shipping and it just makes you mad. Yes. Like, like that, that just, that shows shipping privileges. Oh yeah. I, I bought something for my wife for like Christmas from entertainment earth. And I think the shipping was like $5 or maybe it was like 10 bucks or something. And she's like, you spent $10 on shipping. And I was like, it's not like Amazon. <laughs> it, it's not like everything's free now. So, so yeah, I feel, I feel the pain of shipping. That's for sure. Well, that's uh that's great that your your work is getting distributed like that. I uh, I know I greatly enjoyed uh, your graphic novel, uh, and it was such a an interesting topic too. I think, you know, there's so there's so many different as. Well, how about how about this before we get back to your work? Um, okay. This week, Reed chose the 2001 film The Lost Battalion, uh, which was a straight to TV film by A and E. Um, what uh what made you choose this film probably because it was i don't know probably the way that i got introduced to like world war one I, I guess in a way like most kids did like in my generation like growing up in like the 90s um happened to be down at the beach i think it was memorial day maybe it was the fourth of july and they showed this movie and I was like, oh, cool. You know, they were showing a bunch of war films um, and they showed this one. I was like, well, I've never seen it. And it was on A&E. So I watched it and I mean, I knew about World War One, um, but I really didn't know much about it. So I guess this film kind of like sparked my interest in it in a way that maybe it's like the precursor to the stretcher bears in a way, like somehow that implanted the idea a long time ago, way back in my brain and just was like, hey, there's this film that came out and I, I don't know it just really picked my interest in world war one I. I mean it it propelled me to do like more research and reading into it it eventually got me years later i went out to kansas city missouri and went to the world war one museum that's out there i highly recommend that museum if you have a chance to go out to kansas city not just for the barbecue um or to see the chiefs play but definitely go to the world war one museum because it is probably Besides, unless you go to the Imperial War Museum over in um, the United Kingdom, which I haven't made it to, um, it's just amazing. It's amazing the amount of like 
things that they have in there from the war and just like army patches and they have like a full mock-up of a trench like what it looked like and you can actually look down into the battlefield and they actually play like steel well some of the old films and stuff from world war one in there and the bombs are going off i mean it's it's amazing it's really cool and i know i'm going to go off on a bunch of tangents here because <laughs> i'm we, a history we, nerd so <laughs> we're, we're big on we're big on tangents here aren't we jack oh yeah Yes, so, we are. So, Jack, had you ever seen this film before? Nope. Never once. It was a new experience for me. That link you sent me of it on YouTube, the <laughs> quality was dicey. <laughs> well, and do you was... want do you want free or do you want quality? I mean, is there no reason we can't choose both? I'm just saying that. Like, that is like the biggest lie the devil ever wrought upon mankind is quality or quantity or free or good blah 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 to be fair anyway, i think it is free on amazon prime so oh i didn't realize yeah, that. i don't i don't have an amazon prime account at least not one that i regularly use um do they do they not have two-day shipping in pier oh no they do it's just i don't often order things online it makes me nervous Oh, you're you're a financially stable individual, is what I you're know, trying I'm, to say. Well, I, I try to be. Um, there were a lot of skips in like the audio. There, the Germans have us surrounded. Have us surrounded. I'm sure that's how they probably got around the uh, the copyright claims. Yeah. <laughs> the glorious I'm sorry. 240p. I just Googled it and sent you the first link. <laughs> you pile. What did you watch it on? I watched it on Amazon. Sell out. <laughs> I watch it on DVD. I actually own the copy on DVD. <laughs> I know that sounds like super nerdy, but like I bought it like years ago. So I like dusted the DVD off and like threw it in the Blu-ray player to like watch it. But Jack, you're right. Like I didn't realize it but like did you guys notice like how shaky the camera movement was like, i loved it, the zooms yeah like i don't so yeah. I, ha I have a thing about the zooms did anybody else get the when they were doing like moving camera shots or when they were doing the like quick zoom in moments <laughs> did it remind you of the like early 2000s like you wouldn't steal a car you wouldn't yeah. steal a purse like anti-piracy like messages that they would put on dvds yeah it, it, or go ahead no do you go ahead jack i'm sorry uh it reminded me of a bunch of shitty action movies from the early to mid 2000s where i don't know nicholas cage's character would pull out a gun and shoot a guy and then it'd do dramatic zoom on his face and does the same sound sound effect i just fucking shot you has <laughs> a clever one-liner that isn't really that clever then he saves the blonde yeah, i love it... i'm sorry john no you go ahead i was just gonna say it kind of reminded me of i don't know it you guys have seen like 13 ghosts and stuff like where they would do like the super quick like zoom in on the death scene <laughs> it, it reminded me of like that and at the same time i was like it also kind of reminded me of a video game it was like super close in and like the shot was like no of like some guy getting shot Red Dead redemption getting, like, two it, yeah yeah kind of <laughs> like that it was just like so unnecessary i mean with a lot of them 
but I uh so I am in the process of unpacking because we just got into a new house um and this is the first time I've actually had a man cave um we have like a lofted space that my wife was like okay this is going to be your space you can either put all <laughs> she's like use it or lose it put all your shit here or you're not going to have a space I'm like okay so I I, I ordered a, a TV on Prime Day man Amazon is just getting a ton of free advertisements from us today oh yeah I they're not they our sponsor but they could like be. they need it yeah they definitely <laughs> should sponsor you guys though just yeah. hint hint Amazon Right. Just a couple of cents, Mr. Bezos. <laughs> Just a few. You got some to spare. Anyways, um, so I I got a 4K TV. I, I think it was like a 40 inch or something. Not nothing, you know, massive or anything. But it was like a, a hundred bucks or something for the Prime mm-hmm. Day deal. And uh this was the first movie that I watched on it. It's the first time I've had a 4K TV. So I got it all set up and I'm excited because I'm like, ooh, 4K, awesome. And then I remember I'm like, yeah, just because I have a 4K TV doesn't mean that this film was right shot for that. It was shot for, you know, the big, obnoxious, like four foot deep TVs of the early 2000s. Um, and so uh, my wife, Miranda, she was like, how's the, how's the TV? I'm like, honestly, I don't know because... <laughs> It still kind of looks a little shitty, but that's because I'm watching a 2000 film. Oh, yeah. I mean, the quality of it, I mean, watching it on the Blu-ray player downstairs and, like, the quality of it. Like, you have the two big, huge black squares on the side because you're right. It was made for, like, a much smaller TV, nothing in widescreen. And, I mean, even, which I think is really funny because the film itself came out December of, like, December 2nd of 2001. And Band of Brothers came out the same year in September in 2001 and like the quality of those things are so so different you know yeah. it, it, for looking at everything I guess it's because it was like an A&E film that was also done like alongside the History Channel that maybe that's why the quality was like that but it definitely does not hold up but it definitely has those vibes of like a little bit of Band of Brothers and a little bit of Saving Private Ryan but they just didn't have the budget to like where right. it needed to be realistically for the film. You know, for a movie that was operating on a straight to TV budget, this is still a really good film. At least I thought it was. Um, this film addresses most issues that I had with Gettysburg, which is uh, one of my biggest complaints with Gettysburg was the fact that it was it was a PG movie about you know one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War, right? And you know, here we have a movie that is meant for TV that anybody could see, and we see guys with their limbs getting blown off. We see guys getting set on fire. Like it is a brutal representation of war, and it just goes to show that if A and E could put out something this violent on TV in the year two thousand and one. There's no reason why Gettysburg couldn't show a teeny bit of, of of blood in their movie. I mean, that's true. I mean, yeah, you've got a good point about that. I mean, because it was kind of visceral because, like, people were getting shot in the face or in, like, you know, the chest. You did have that guy with, like, his limbs getting blown off. Um, I didn't think it was bloody enough. I know that 
but it's a, it's a made for TV movie. I get that. But like when you think about World War One and, and you look at films, you know, like Pass of Glory or even at the newest, like All Quiet on Western Front, like how visceral the war is. It was kind of this is going to sound really bad, but it's like they were playing with kid gloves too much. It was like, let's make this soft enough for TV that grandma and little Timmy can sit down and watch this, you know, and that they're, they're not going to be really tur- turned off and away from it. So I, I guess you're right. I guess we should give A&E some credit for like making a war film that the average American who's not big into blood and guts could like sit down and watch and enjoy that. It, that is true. Speaking of, uh, of Band of Brothers, uh, did anybody notice the the one crossover actor between the two? Yeah, Philip McKee. Yeah. Or I think that's how you say his name. Yeah, he was, because for the film, he played Captain George McMurtry, and then over at Band of Brothers, he played uh, Major Robert L. Strayer for Band of Brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, which I kind of wonder, I, I wonder how close the filming was that where I'm sure just, it had to have been back to back. It had it had to have been because he looks the exact same. But I swear they filmed, um, they filmed the Lost Battalion in Pennsylvania. I don't know why, but like the dirt and the trees and everything, it feels like they just went to some national park and just was like, "Hey, we're going to occupy this national park for a little bit, and they're going to go over here and like film this because that's that's really what it looked like to me because like the um the landscape looks different in Europe than it does um, how it was in the Lost Battalion film. I know that sounds really weird to say, but from doing all the research that Ryan and I did for the stretcher bearers, like I couldn't travel to France because of course it was during COVID, but we use like Google earth to um, basically like retrace um, the fourth division that we followed in the stretcher bearers that we were basically able to go through the Meuse-Argonne battlefield and like see where the trenches were, check maps, check photos. So it was really interesting to see like how it was in the film versus like kind of how historically it was. Cause it would look totally different and like so many more corpses, so much more blood and so much more rain. Like it practically rained almost every day that they were there during the battle of the Meuse-Argonne. Yeah, I love um, how when this movie opens up, it does the very stereotypical, like all the guys are in the trench and it's pouring rain and, you know, it's the like, they're suffering, just standing in puddles. And then as soon as they launch the attack, it's like, okay, it's nice sunny days. Yeah, blue skies, like everything's nice. We're just blowing the whistle, getting shot. But um, I really would commend the movie, though, too, is that because... The division that Whittlesey had was the All-American division, and those guys were all from New York City. So, like, you had people with, like, trying to pronounce the last names. Like, the Polish guy had, well, the guy... Krotoshinsky. Yeah, Krotoshinsky. Like, trying to say Krotoshinsky, and there was people that were Italian, Jewish, Irish that were in there. And then once they got to France, they were actually mixed in with people from the Midwest. So you'd have that guy from, like, Texas and like South Dakota and Montana that would like come into the group. So it was like a real big mix of like all these different, like, you know, Americans who are used to basically living in the wild West, which is what, which basically was still around back then versus like the New York city tough guys 
that we had, which was which is really nice to see that the film was able to like capture that in a way because a lot of war films you don't really get the feeling with people, um, but this one you actually did. You got to actually you know feel it like you were part of it, especially with the wisecracks they they were able to give each other too. I was going to say, I don't know about you, Jack, but my uh, my favorite uh, actors in this movie was the uh, Statler Waldorf stand-ins from, <laughs> you know, the ones that are like, what do you even do when you go camping? Well, you sleep outside. He's like, isn't that supposed to be fun? He's like, yeah, it's half the fun. He's like, you hear that? We're having fun out here. <laughs> well, what was that one line where he's like don't they have trees in new york i mean yeah in like the parks <laughs> yeah yeah uh which is it's just funny to think about is that you know those those guys that were over there most of them were like first generation american or they may have actually immigrated through ellis island into america i mean gosh 20 what was it 20 percent of the German population that lived in New York at that time still identified as German or like instead of identifying as American, even though they may have been born in America at that time. So it's just really interesting to see like that demographic because like those guys, that's all they ever knew is like a concrete jungle. They maybe only saw a tree in a park or that was it. And now they're in the middle of this forest where their parents may have seen it in their life, but this is the first time they're experiencing it. So that was, that was always kind of cool to like think about and see too. I think that's an interesting topic and and this film touched on it a teeny bit, but it also kind of brushed it away. I think it could have explored it a little better. You know, you mentioned, you know, America obviously has a huge German immigrant population at this time frame. And, you know, to think during world war one and world war two, you have such huge German populations in America who still identify strongly with their German heritage. Like, that had to have been a really tough sell on the propaganda side of things of like, yeah, we're going to go kick the Kaiser's ass. It's like old Wilhelm was my man 10 years ago, you know, like, um, and there was one scene with major Whittlesey that I really wish was a little more fleshed out, but I, I think it was done well, nonetheless, but it could have been longer or they could have delved a little deeper and I think it was, I think it was Captain McMurdy, McMurtry that was asking him, or maybe it was one of the other officers, but um, they're like, you don't believe in this war, do you? And he's like, that's not the point. Yeah. And it's, and it, it, it was a valid thing. There's, there was a ton of people going into World War One who was like, that's not our war. We don't need to go over there. I mean, one of the, the biggest things for America and or justifications for America entering World War One was the Zimmerman telegram, which was Germany's kind of last ditch effort to keep America out because they were anticipating us joining uh, anyways, but they sent a message to Mexico and they're like, Hey, if you invade California, like we'll hook you up <laughs> to yeah. which the, to which Mexico said, no, thanks. <laughs> Well, and good too on like the ambassador back then of like letting, you know, Wilson and the his staff know like that was going on because you're right. I mean, 
the the Zimmerman letter, the sinking of the Lusitania, along with some other ships that were, you know, out in the Atlantic that got sunk by the U-boats. It it they all kind of like led us into a war that people didn't want to. I mean, you're right, people didn't want to go join at all because they there were plenty of Germans in America that you know liked the Kaiser. They didn't want to go some of them actually left america went back home and joined up in the war we saw that a little bit in world war ii also because even band of brothers hinted on that um in one of the episodes that they did but i that scene kind of with whittlesey because i think it was it was the general that gave him his orders that when he went down into that basement where the main headquarters was he was he was arguing against like whittlesey because like Whittlesey's a weird guy, and I know that sounds really odd to say, but, like, he was different. I think it was because he was an educated man. He was trained in the Adirondacks um, in New York. He went to an officer school that was up there. I even want to say that McMurtry did, too, and they met there. Um, But I don't know. Like, Whittlesey didn't want to be a part of the war, but I don't know. The one thing I wish the film had touched on too with Whittlesey is that like he loved his men. There was not a better leader to ha- that those guys could have had other than Whittlesey and McMurtry there at that point because he gave his full and we could talk about this. I know we're going to talk about this more on because I know John you had mentioned that you want to talk about Whittlesey too uh, a little bit, but like he gave so much of himself for his men during the war and it's not even touched on hardly at all in the movie. I mean, like it's, the, clo- the closest we see is, you know, the movie allude, you know, there's multiple moments where, you know, there's some officers and you can see the conversations between the different low level soldiers that they're like, you can see that they have a high level respect for him, but it's like you said, we don't really see that reciprocating back. We see it a bit when he talks to the general at the end of the movie where he's like, I don't see these as acceptable losses. Right. Um, but even then, that's that's not really a... That, that could be taken any number of ways, you know? That could be taken as an anti-war, like, I don't believe in loss of life, or it could be taken the other way of, like, I'm close to these guys and they're like family to me. There, there's a whole spectrum. Um I think, you know, going, you know, going back a little bit to the, you know, his view on war that, you know, his, his relationship with his men and his view on war, I think could have been parsed out better, but I will say that I I absolutely love the line that he gave and this isn't the exact wording of it, but it's along the lines of like, we don't get to choose our responsibilities and obligations. Yeah. And it, it just shows he's like, even though I may not agree with X or Y, whatever, it's like my duty and responsibility is to take care of these guys or to complete this objective, and therefore I will do it. Right, and and it did kind of hit on that too a little a little bit because like Whittlesey during the battle when they were up there um, on the ridge, he would actually go from it wasn't called a foxhole; it was called a funk hole. So they went from, I know it sounds really weird to say that, but it was actually called a funk hole. So they went funky, went, funky if you will. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like F U N K. And then it was eventually changed to, to foxhole when World War II came around. But 
Whittlesey would go from his men and try to give them encouragement and positive words. And I think there was even a scene in there about a soldier that got scared or whatnot with firing his rifle and it was jammed and Whittlesey came over there and talked to him while they were actively firing against the Germans and the guy settled down and he started to shoot and he was fine. So he cared enough about his men that whenever they needed him, he was there. It literally got to the point that during the battle, because think about it, these guys were stuck essentially from October the 2nd until like October the 8th. So Whittlesey didn't sleep hardly at all the entire time. And they didn't show that at all in the film that he basically was awake the entire time. So he's, they're running off of no food, hardly no water. And he's running off of no sleep just about and they think they say that if he slept he may have slept an hour at most because whenever someone needed him he was awake and there and he was talking so it's just i feel like the movie it kind of did justice to whittlesey but it kind of like took a step back and try to show him more of a conscious objector to the war than like it showed he cared about his men but it didn't kind of take that step that maybe it should have been more about Maybe it should have been a Charles Whittlesey movie more than, I mean, I know they were trying to show about the Lost Battalion too and like encompass everything with that. But like, to me, if you show it, you kind of got to show like project Whittlesey more into it because like we follow him around so much of the film and it just feels like there's a disconnect between it. It feels like the film was trying to accomplish it, but it kind of just like dropped the ball in a couple instances with that. Yeah, it's... uh there's definitely points where you can definitely be like, I wish this was a, a Whittlesey movie. And there's, there's a lot of just like one line throwaway things that make you like, think like, man, where's more to this story or, or where's more to that, like to that person, yeah. like, like McMurtry, he has one line in mm. this movie that makes you go, wait, what he, and it's when he is reassuring Whittlesey and he says, you know, Major, I was with Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders at San Juan Hill, and I've never served with a finer man. It's like, wait a minute, hold up. Can we get more of your story, please? <laughs> like, <laughs> you mean to tell me you went up San Juan Hill and now you are in one of the like most famous engagements in World War One? Like, come on, let's 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 Elaborate. do a little more. Yeah, let's do some exploring. Well, that that is true, though. I mean, he was he was. Um... If I'm not mistaken, he was like a lifelong, his career was lifelong in the military, and he actually did serve alongside Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. So that was like his experience first off. Now, do I think he said that at Whittlesey? He may have. I have no idea. I wasn't there. But like, it, I don't know. It, it kind of, it's so interesting too, because like Whittlesey and Theodore Roosevelt are two totally different people. Oh, like absolutely. Roosevelt was excited about people going to World War One. He wanted to go himself, but he is too old. And he was like when the troops were like when they paraded through New York, um, Roosevelt was there and they were like speak. He was speaking back and forth to the men and like he was like rattling them and saying that they were true men because they were going to fight at the front. And that there were no cowards here, only like the best American men, because like this was the time and place where you had to be a manly man. And if you weren't a manly man, you were a pansy. And that's 
I would hate of, to be judged against Teddy Roosevelt's standard I would hate of a man. That's a I would hate to be judged against him too. Oh yeah, for real. I mean, and I love Teddy Roosevelt, but like even he would have been such an interesting person to like meet because like he made himself the definition of like the manly man. I mean, you definitely wouldn't have called him a manly man if you knew about his childhood, you know, growing up as an asthmatic and, you know, he was not a very healthy kid at all. I mean, he had to overcome asthma. He had to overcome like his, the fact he wore glasses because when he went out West, people thought he was a pansy because he wore glasses and a sissy. And then that's when he started boxing just to prove them all wrong. So it's just like, it's so, it's a different, so many dichotomies in everything. This, this is a little off topic, but I, I have to share it just because it, it, it shows how well I, I handle my finances. <laughs> um, so it, it's a pretty well-established fact on this show and just amongst my friend group, my favorite president is George Washington. Um, show him the tattoo. Oh yeah, I I got this done on the Fourth of July. Oh nice, that's really good. And for our listeners, I, I just showed them a tattoo. You can see it on our Instagram page. It's it's I George, George Washington mooning. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. crossing the Delaware with his pants down. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's it's, it's beautiful. It's quite hairy. <laughs> it's quite the political statement towards the British, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, but after after it takes dunking the tea to a whole new level, right? So after George Washington, my next favorite president is Teddy Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And uh, are, are you familiar with, uh, <coughs> excuse me, are you familiar with the um, grading company called Beckett? I've heard of them, yeah. So it's it's kind of like CGC or there, there's a bunch of companies out there that you can send them a signature or like baseball cards or comic books. And basically on a scale of like one to 10, it says this is how good of condition it is. But these companies also do signature verifications. Um, I got the chance to, it's not a Teddy Roosevelt signature. Mm -hmm. um, and it's still packed away. I haven't pulled it out, but I have the, the company Beckett, what they did is they came in possession of a letter that was written by Teddy Roosevelt. And there might be people out there that find this sacrilegious, but what they did was they took this letter and they cut it up into each individual word in this letter is in this own encapsulated piece. So it's this plastic display case that has a portrait of Teddy Roosevelt and then at the bottom, it is one word that he hand wrote on a letter. Wow. And, and uh, you know, it it really only appeals to, like, super nerdy history people. Because it's like, right. I own one word written by Teddy Roosevelt, you know, as opposed to, like, his actual signature or, like, an entire letter or whatever. But the word that I purchased was uh, the word ass. So... <laughs> So yes, I have a very fancy display of a hand-ridden uh, ass by Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, that's that's really cool though, because like, how many people can say that I have the fact, or I have a piece of a letter where Teddy Roosevelt said "ass" 
and like wrote it in his script. I mean, that's really cool though. Yeah. You know, I, mean, I think it'd be cooler right. to have the whole letter, but you know, Oh yeah. I mean, I, I think capitalism it's little, is what it is. Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of strange. They didn't like keep the letter intact, but I get the fact that, I mean, if you're a diehard fan and you want to own a piece of history, that's the thing too. It's kind of like, what's your budget for this? You know, because like, do you want to break the bank and spend like several grand on a full letter or spend a couple hundred on like one letter, one word ass? You know, I mean, really, I mean, it's true. Just, though. it's silly. So, well, it's silly, <laughs> but it's, but it's like you're owning a piece of history, you right. know, and it, you know, that's the biggest thing with connecting anything to people to get them interested in history is that, you know, you can go to a museum and see it, but if you have a letter that Teddy Roosevelt wrote, that makes it even more real, you know, cause he was a real person. He's just not some you know, person that's behind a, you know, a piece of glass in a museum is a letter that you have in your home. So, I mean, it's really cool. What about On you, that, Jack? Who, who's your favorite president? Nixon and Buchanan. Nixon and Buchanan. Why no, Nixon, I will, though? I will not elaborate. <laughs> I'm joking, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah, the headless body of Spiro Agnew. Um, <laughs> uh, I like Teddy Roosevelt. <clears throat> Again, I will not elaborate, but Teddy Roosevelt, I just looked it up as the only president to have a confirmed tattoo and it was his family crest on his chest. Hmm. Hmm. The more, you know, with Jack Mortensen, <laughs> we would I mean, it wouldn't surprise effect, me if you had a tattoo. It's... We would use the more you know sound effect, but I think that's trademarked. So. <laughs> hmm. Interestingly enough, that wasn't his only tattoo. He also had an anchor on his forearm and a tribal tattoo on his right. It was pretty sick. <laughs> he also had a butterfly tramp stamp. But... Oh, yeah. We don't talk about that, though. Those are from his Rough Rider days. <laughs> Got him hilarious. So, uh, Jack, what was uh, what was the scene that stuck out the most to you in this film? I liked that in that scene towards the beginning when they're getting the four one one on what it means to be in a trench, and he's like, "If you hear whistling, hit the deck." And then that that other like his toady kept correcting him, like for the proper pronunciation of things and elaborating on things he just said. Yeah, the Statler Waldorf duo. Yeah, the, the Statler Waldorf <laughs> duel. But um and then those two new guys they're like, "Oh, so, and yeah, they're like talking about the artillery. Like, we'll get a warning, right?" And then one of the old timers whistles really sharply and freaks them out so they hit the dirt. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't go easy on the new guy. No, but it was a good way to show though like the mentality of like a veteran yeah versus like a newbie like going in like because i mean that's how it would be i mean that's what it was like for them i mean coming in and i mean hearing the whistle and hearing the 88s or um camera else what else what else they called like not a bouncing betty but they called something else with the someone's the mini yeah something, something yeah <laughs> mini waffa that was it the uh, mini, yeah. I think, thing was mini waffle yeah 
but yeah it what, did i'm sorry john go ahead oh i, I was just going to say what uh scene stuck with you the most probably to me the scene that stuck with me the most is the scene that did not happen in history <laughs> and i know that sounds bad but like when whittlesey when the guy came back with the note for whittlesey and the surrender flag and then whittlesey like picked it up he's like this is my answer and like he chucked it and like it's stuck in the air and like he's like, like the, the spartan spear throw yeah the spartan spear throw i was like that didn't happen that's such full of shit. what really happened is that they screamed obscenities at the germans and that was their answer their answer was to like scream and cuss at the germans and tell them they weren't fucking going anywhere um because the guy that brought that letter back, Whittlesey was pissed that he brought that letter back and he had been fed and had been taken care of. Whittlesey later on after the war tried to court-martial this guy and they actually went to court and it was later dropped. Um, so well, it, that, that kind of shows because uh, the Lieutenant Leak character, he refused everything. Yeah, he did. He refused everything in the end and it, it was just interesting to me because like it just seems it's so implausible you know like now i'm not saying the sh the handshake that was nice the handshake it was like see you later comrade and like between him and I'll the german yeah be to say and then like he went back over and it's like i'll try not to shoot you tomorrow or like whatnot but like it's just having having that come up that's that always sticks out to me because it's just so implausible to you know like have him have the spartan throw have the flag stick up and also for them to shoot that plane down because that didn't happen at all either um i'm not saying that didn't happen in the war of course that did but i'm saying that that instance of the plane finding the men no plane ever found them um during the war at all the the brush was so overgrown the trees that were there they a, a plane could not fly most of that time because how bad the weather was too um it was Jeremy, the pigeon Oh, that yeah. told them the where pigeon. the hero pigeon and that that's all true mm -hmm. share me that when he got back he was he had trapped on the breast he lost one eye he had one leg that was missing and he got back and told them for the you know basically for the love of god you're hitting our own men 30 men died during that bombardment and when after the bombardment which it didn't show it wasn't 60 like it said in the film it was 30. the men that died they basically built a barricade out of their corpses and the, there was actually a graveyard up on top of the hill of the ravine as long along with that meal and some of the graves got turned up so some of the soldiers actually got put in the graves and they basically built up a barrier of corpses i mean some of the men Metal. when the, yeah when that firing was coming in they actually <laughs> took corpses and put on top of themselves yeah they definitely didn't prevent... make it into the tv oh adaptation. no it, it's it's totally different but the thing that I, I just wrote down as a note just to say, have you guys ever been to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C.? I have. Maybe have? a long time ago. Okay. I went there and uh, I didn't know that Cherami was there, so I didn't actively go and look. Um, I was a little too busy. Uh, I, spent, I spent a good chunk of my time just sitting in the room that they have the... Uh, the Star Spangled Banner that inspired the national anthem displayed in. 
Like I spent a good chunk of time in there, but okay. had I known that Sheremy was there, I would have gone and tried to look. Yeah, because that I remember seeing it as a kid, like going in there and I was like, "Why is this pigeon in here?" And I was like, "Why is it missing <laughs> up? And why is it missing a leg and an eye?" And I was like, "Oh, it's Sheremy." And um, I always think that's funny. So like, you could go to Smithsonian today and see this stuff they, pigeon uh, sitting there. They gave Sheremy the the French equivalent of the Medal of Honor, didn't they? They did. They did. He yeah. got um, the crux, um, crux to something. I can't remember the name yeah. of it, but yeah, he Croy got basically Croix de Guerre. Yeah, Croix de Guerre. Yeah, I don't he speak got French. That. So the Guerre Guerre. It's probably how Jack's probably how you said it the first time. Croix de Guerre. He's yeah. such a worldly man. I know. He's a man of very defined tastes. Mm, my but, French. Um, my French is even worse than my Spanish. <laughs> That's saying something. Yeah. Hey, hey fuck you. <laughs> I'm a, your, your Spanish is better than my German. You, at I least broke, you. <laughs> I broke a 170 day streak on Duolingo. Oh, and, nice. I studied, and I studied Spanish in college. You're doing better than me because uh, I, I haven't been on Babbel in probably like a month or so. Both of whom don't sponsor our show, but if they wanted to. But. Uh, what the hell was I going to say? Getting back to the share of me thing, the movie really downplayed the extent of the injuries. Oh, yeah. Like, it... he he literally dragged himself into the um, tent. He was so fucked up. I'm yeah, just they... surprised he lived, you know, he died a year after the war, but I'm surprised he even lived that long. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. Well, and plus, like, his owner... Well, I guess is I guess the guy that took care of him, uh, he actually took him back to the states with him after the war. But the funny thing is, is that during the battle, Cherami got he was basically paralyzed in fear, and he got up in a tree. So when he let him go with that letter, Cherami flew up into a tree, and Whittlesey was pissed. <laughs> and the guy John that released Jeremy was also pissed to the point that the men and Willsey started screaming and trying to throw things at Jeremy. He wouldn't move. So there was stupid all... fucking bird. Exactly. So there's all these people. Finally, John had to run down and hit the tree that Jeremy was in to scare him to the point to fly off. So it's amazing, really, that that bird even made it to begin with because all those mortar shot shells were coming in and that's where he sustained all those injuries. It wasn't from the Germans. It was just from all those mortar shells that that's why he was so messed up when he got back. So it's, but you know, it's amazing to me too. Is like they depended that much on a pigeon mm -hmm. to go back and deliver a message. Low tech solutions. Yeah. World War One. Th this is one of the things that I love about World War One is that, um, you know, and it's kind of a holdover from the Civil War, where each individual job was its own regiment or company. In in like like in the Civil War, you had the Fourth Artillery Company, or you would have you know the Twentieth May, all that stuff. And we start to see more integration in World War One, but we still get these weird units. Oh yeah, during during World War One. So like, America had a pigeon corps, <laughs> and like they just divvied <laughs> out guys from the pigeon corps out into infantry units, just like um, 
Miranda and I, we have a yearly tradition for Memorial Day. What we do is we just pick a random cemetery and we go out and we clean graves. And I remember a couple of years ago, I came across one grave of a World War One veteran and he belonged to, it was like the 11th balloon company. Mm. You know, it, it like they had an entire company that they sent dudes up in observation balloons and that was just, okay, this is this unit yep. that does that. And so, and, and you see that all like, even amongst just specific weapons, like weapons that we like are normally incorporated into infantry units. Like we see, you know, the first machine gun company or, you know, the, uh, like seventh, uh, chemical warfare battalion or all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know for me, just the, the organizational side of it kind of has always struck, struck me as odd. Just plus imagine being a veteran of the, the third balloon company. Like at like you go to the VFW and you put in your application. It's like I was a balloon man. Well, it's funny you mentioned that too, because did you realize we had um, a unit dedicated to logging? They were loggers, and like, yeah, they're called the, the they were the the rail splitters. Yep, they were the rail splitters. Yep, because all the wood that we needed for the war, like they took loggers like all up around the Pacific Northwest. Some of them were like from Maine they came in and they took them into the forests and they had them cut down i mean trees and that was their whole experience in the war some of those guys never even picked up a rifle they just picked up an axe and the entire time in the war they made uh rails for the railroad they made um ladders anything you could imagine made of wood they they pretty much made by hand um which was it's just amazing to think about that all those pieces went in for that first world war and you would never really hear about them, you know, otherwise, unless like you say, John, like, unless you go and you scrounge for that information, you know, or you, you go to a cemetery or you, you do research behind it. You don't realize like there's all these positions to make the army function. There was uh so my, and this is the other tattoo and I'll, I'll post this one to Instagram at some point, but so I have this one, which is my World War One piece. Nice. Um, so I have the the poppy there, and then obviously the doughboy with the gas mask. Um, my whole sleeve is um, meant to be like a family history sleeve. Um, mm-hmm. So I got that for my great grandfather, and he was a part of the sanitary train, which you're probably familiar with. You know, given your work with uh, you know your recent comic book. But, you know, the the sanitary train, you know, that's where you have your field hospitals, but they also, you know, they also kind of act as like a supply depot. And they also did like, that was like the centralized area where all the like food production, like, you know, you had guys who their only job was like, you had guys whose literal job was like, I am a baker for the 77th infantry division. And, you know, it's like you said they they had a job for everything and world war one and i think most wars also oftentimes focuses in so much just on the combat side of things yeah and i mean that's i mean just to briefly touch on the comic too for the stretcher bearers when we did the research for that like a stretcher bearer itself um depending on the unit size could be anywhere from two men to four men 
at a time, depending on how big the unit or the division was. Um, those guys really weren't trained with much medical knowledge. Um, the only thing they were really trained was how to assess a wound um, and basically like splint a wound or try to put gauze and packing in there to try to keep you alive long enough to get you to an aid station. There was a guy that was called an aid man and an aid man is basically a precursor to what we have today as a modern field medic. Um, they would go around and they still had the same thing the stretch bears did. They had splints, rolled gauze. Um, they didn't really carry any type of painkiller or anything like that. They were, basically just kind of like field triage to get them stabilized, get them on a stretcher and send them back to the line. So really without world war one, we really wouldn't have a lot of like for battlefield combat and battlefield medicine. It all really came from world war one. And without learning this by men dying essentially. And, we, we wouldn't have the modern medical system that we have now. We wouldn't really have triage. We wouldn't have really advanced prosthetics that we have now either because, you know, the disfigured men, the gargoyles that came out from the war, because think about it, a lot of the wounds that we have here are mass amputations and facial wounds um, that came out during the war. So like prosthetics was really advanced by the end of it. And if you'd ever seen Boardwalk Empire, Richard, who was up there, you could see like half his face was basically blown off. And you could actually, it was a really good representation of like the gargoyle's mask. Sometimes it was tin held together with magnets. Sometimes it was held together with glasses that they could just basically just this gaping wound that they lived with for the rest of their life. Right. So, you know, speaking of like the stretcher bears, what, what did, I guess I'll, I'll redirect this question to Jack. What did you think of the, uh, the running to the water scene with the, the medic? Man, (laughs) you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was under the impression it was a war crime to kill medics. I don't know what the... I don't know what the rule is if they're getting water as opposed to treating someone or getting them off the battlefield. Um, or if they, or I know, if the Germans cared at this point. I can't remember. Was Geneva Convention before or after this? It war? was after. Okay. So yeah, there wasn't a, there, wasn't there a rule were, yet. Yeah. Yeah. But there were like informal agreements. Yeah. There were gentlemanly that, agreements, but we know how those go. And yeah. They, and, they dated back to like the 1400s. That is true. That um, it it was advised that they tried not to shoot the medics, at least intentionally. But, you know, some people or soldiers get the heat of the moment, heat of the battle, like uh, with the Red Cross, they tried not to shoot them. Now, that scene that happened with the medic, um, history would dictate a little differently though what happened it wasn't just the medic that went it was actually the men because their buddies that got shot they were begging for water um because a lot of them they didn't bring enough supplies they ran out of water so what the men would do is that they would sneak down to the um the little stream that ran by the ravine they would dip the canteens in and try to run back but so many of the guys got shot and never made it back that Whittlesey finally had to tell them, do not go to the river. Don't go to the Creek 
and fill your canteen up. So the men would basically, a lot of them never got water um, at that point, and they died um, without having a last drink of water or anything like that. There wasn't anything like, because it said in the movie, Whittlesey said, shoot the next man that goes to get the water. That was that was utter bullshit. Like, he wouldn't have I remember, said that. I remember laughing at that statement, because I'm like, so wait, my choice is either I can be a hero, get water for the wounded, probably get shot, or... Yeah. I could defy this order and get shot. Either way, I, I got a pretty significant chance of getting shot. So why not try yeah. to accomplish something good out of it? Well, even it mentioned too, like uh, the guy that was hiding in the bushes that he was like the radio operator. Like it was true that early on during the battle that like the radio line got cut. So the only communication they had was the pigeons that, but Whittlesey sent runners, but I think only, only one runner actually made it. Um, and he made it back there, but like the Germans had them surrounded. I mean, the French never, never moved up to Whittlesey's right or left, whatever side they were on. And they were essentially cut off. They were, I mean, literally they were in the middle of the German line, essentially cut off from everybody. Germans were all around them. And the flamethrowers were actually off too, because they actually attacked with flamethrowers twice. Uh, the first time, was really bad that the men were so terrified of the flamethrowers. They actually didn't react right away. So a lot of the guys died by being shot with the flamethrowers. And the second time that it happened, they were more prepared and they were actually more vicious towards the flamethrowers and shot them to pieces and actually intentionally tried to shoot the tanks more so they would blow up and like essentially I remember napalm the, their the own really men. Intense moment in that scene was, uh, when Whittlesey himself, he has his 1911 in one hand, and he picks up a bayonet in the other, yeah. and he does like a hand to hand combat with uh, one of the flamethrower operators, and like you can see the like over overly dramatic like flamethrower operator trying to whack him in the head with his yeah. with the <laughs> the like apparatus for shooting the flames, and he misses, and then uh, Whittlesey just shoots him in the face like from point <laughs> blank. That was one of those like when I saw that sound, I was like, Jesus Christ. But that, that entire scene was, uh, that was so intense. Um, I don't think if I remember this correctly, but I don't think we actually see any of the flamethrower operators get like blown up in the way that you're yeah, describing. We, we don't. Which is, we, is kind of interesting. Yeah. Cause that seems to be a trope with flamethrowers in movies is there's always yeah. that, like, especially like that happens in wind talkers where, the mm -hmm. one flamethrower operator gets shot in the tank and then, you know, goes up in a fire explosion. Yeah. And I think it also happens in, uh, letters from Iwo Jima. I think there's a guy that gets shot. He's got a flamethrower pack on and he gets blown up too. I remember the one in wind talkers, but yeah, they didn't even show, like there was a lot of hand to hand combat that happened to towards the end when they were running low on ammo, like where Whittlesey grabbed the flamethrower guy. I mean, there essentially was a lot of hand to hand combat, in like fighting with whatever they had. I mean, it's amazing the amount of people that got killed with shovels in the first world war. Cause like if your gun didn't work, you didn't have a bayonet or a trench knife, cleave their head off with a shovel. So, I mean, which I, I it showed that in the new all quiet on the Western front, which was like, that was nice to see. It's like someone got killed with a shovel. So it was like, yeah, that was, that was accurate. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I can relate. I got a lot of gold dog tags out of uh, Battlefield 1, so. <laughs> that was a great game, though. 
Jack, did you ever play uh, Battlefield 1? I did. It was a great game. What was your favorite ba- map? I, I didn't really play the multiplayer a lot. I was the loser that played the campaign. But well, Of course you were. I still remember we've lost objective butter. <laughs> I remember one time I was on I was on a hot streak uh, because, you know, everybody everybody either wants to get a tank or an airplane in that game. Yeah. And I remember I got the attack plane, which is slower than the fighter, but faster than the bomber, because if you were in the bomber, unless you had gunners with you, like you never lasted like long at all oh yeah but i remember i had the attack airplane and i had the anti-tank gun attached to it which i thought was ridiculous but you know whatever but i remember i got in that plane and i had the anti-tank gun and it was on the desert map and i racked up like a 40 kill count before i got shot down and i'm like yeah i am the greatest Uh, I do you remember the map that it was like pastoral and then there was like a castle or a chalet that was up on like it was part of the Alps map it had to have been but man oh, snipers yeah, would yeah. always camp up there and I got killed so many times just trying to like work my way up to that chateau was it Mont Montgraf or Montegraf yeah I think that was it yeah because like I got murked so many times going I will up say there. I hated the Argon map with a passion. <laughs> the forest. Yeah. yeah. Which is hilarious because that's where this this film is oh yeah based in. Which you're right. Like the way that this film portrays the Argon Forest is vastly different than how at least that game portrayed it, which is like super dense foliage. And, oh yeah. I mean, it was like, super thick, had a lot of brambles. I mean, it was, I mean, whole units could go in there and you could, you could get disoriented and you wouldn't be able to figure out where you were. I mean, you lost men so easily in that. That's why so many people would, like in the stretcher bears, we did a scene like a guy climbed up in a tree and he was just begging to be killed. That actually happened. There were people that would climb up in the trees and just beg to be shot because they couldn't take it anymore. That's got to be... I couldn't imagine getting to that point of desperation. Yeah. I I couldn't either, but it's kind of like the films that we see now with it, it's just like to be in a time, like I wish we had time machines we could just go back and like see it because the films semi do it justice, but I'm just imagining it's even more horrible than, than like what it is because like you've read letters, John, and i mean people describe like how terrible it is i mean some of them do some of them don't i mean but i mean even civil war journals that you look at i mean there are letters that talk about like how bad the battle of shiloh was you know i mean for christ's sakes there were pigs that went out there at night in the thunderstorms and like eight men alive like while they were like dying christ so yeah I know I this is way off topic and maybe a little inappropriate following up your your very serious moment, but uh, I sent this article to Jack a while back. Did you see uh, there is a letter from the Civil War that recently went up to auction that sold for like a lot of money? 
No. Um, and it was about um, there was this one officer from a Confederate unit who I forget exactly who he was writing to, but he was writing about his brother who also served in the unit, but as like just a regular infantryman. Mm-hmm. And basically what they had done was they kicked him out of the unit and sent him to an insane asylum because he had a masturbation addiction. <laughs> and I, sh- I shit you not, this letter sold for like $10,000 or something. Oh my God. That's and great. I said, I'll, I'll send, I'll try and find it and send it to you over Instagram. But yeah, there was this news article where it's like, letter about confederate soldier masturbating goes up for auction i'm like what i mean but that's it's so perfect i mean I, honestly it's like that's that's great though i mean because the weirdest civil war fact i know is that like the men that were into the battlefield they wouldn't shoot you if you were taking a shit because like that was like the worst thing that you were maybe called into battle and then like you were so distressed by what was going on you had a shit so like people would just drop trowel and just poop and like the there was an agreement that you wouldn't shoot another man that was taking a shit so hey and, maybe that was his that was his defense mechanism they can't I, shoot me if i'm i i know yeah <laughs> i mean but all i can think about is like man this is the worst time to take a shit right now because the general just said we got to go up to the front uh, maybe that should have been like the that's the pro move at the battle of gettysburg it's like as you're across you're you're doing pickett's charge and you're going across the field <laughs> in the middle of the battle you're just like you know what nope drop trow <laughs> but that'd be great just like trying to fit pick which reenactor is like all right you got to be the guy that takes the dump this time it's like you got to be the one that drops trial for the film crew all right phil you gotta you gotta get the uh indecency charge this weekend <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but definitely send me that letter because i'd love to read the article about that because that's nuts uh so jack uh what are you drinking tonight uh i just got done with some tea it was blueberry tea it was very good you moving I on love- to anything harder you you've kind of been on the uh, non-alcoholic train the last couple of weeks yeah don't really feel like it. I'm not really doing it for any particular reason. I just don't feel like it. That Having said enough. that, I might get some beer tonight. I don't know. We'll see. I'm definitely not going to drink a lot this week because it's a hellish schedule I have coming up. What do you think you're going to grab for your six pack this time around? Hmm. You know, I don't know. I usually go and see what jumps out at me. I, I'm a fan of that um, Hawaiian beer, Longboard. Hmm. I don't think I've had that. It's good. Yeah, I haven't had that either. There's also only one place in my entire town to get Sapporo, and it's at the Japanese restaurant in town. Very oh, good. I also like Sapporo. I also like, uh, I think I like Kirin more than I do Sapporo, though. Controversial. I know it's a hot take. It wasn't, I don't, I don't, I haven't had Ichiban in years, but I don't remember it being great or anything amazing. Man, you know, you know, if you came out and visited here again, I could take you to the Korea barbecue and we could have some uh, soju. Wasn't I there the lot when I went up there to watch you graduate? 
Yeah, yeah, you were there. Yeah, I was. Yeah, that that place was good. But man, I'm a big fan of sour and fruity beers, and they used to have this beer at the liquor store, Berry Noir, and I haven't seen it there in months. And there was only two places in town that served it, and neither one have it. But they also have other beers from the same company that are pretty good, so I don't know what the deal is. I'd like to think that I was 80% of the sales and peer for that beer. I mean, you may have been. I mean, it could be, who knows, could be related to COVID. <laughs> you never know, with the supply well, chain and stuff. It's also pure South Dakota. Don't Don't give them too much credit. Yeah, we 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 didn't really give a shit about the whole COVID lockdowns. Like we got tired of that pretty fast and it's it's South Dakota. We right. don't we don't give a shit about anyone. I well, I mean I don't know if you've had the pleasure of being to peer, but uh I have not. It's I saw a article the other day that's like you know, it was it was just one of those, you know, clickbait articles, but it's like this is America's most uh isolated capital and yeah we're about pure we're the only state capital that doesn't have an interstate running directly through it you have really? to drive you have to drive 30 miles to get on the interstate holy crap i didn't realize that yeah we're also the only state capital that doesn't share a single letter with its home state p-i-e-r wow. doesn't show up in anywhere in hmm. south dakota like what's your town's population Mm, about 15,000. Wow, that's tiny. Hey, shut up. It's average size. <laughs> I mean, the time we went to college was bigger than the capital, so. Well, no, it wasn't. Vermilion was like 10,000 people. During the school year, it was. Oh, okay, fair. Because during the school year, the population would double. Yeah. Man, I miss Vermilion. It was such a nice little college town. Yeah, the furthest out west I've ever been was Breckenridge, Colorado, and uh, went out to Denver. And Ooh, Ritzy, well, actually, I, Breckenridge. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I know. We, it, my, my dad loves Colorado. Um, my so my does dad, everybody else. I know. My dad Colorado's and my. Great. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's it's beautiful. Um, but my my grandfather, when he was alive, and my dad and my uncle, they would go out and they would elk hunt. Um, and so. He loved it, and they, him and my mom, try to go back like once a year, and they took me and my brother like one year to go out there, and I guess that was the first, well, I don't know, because is Vegas well is Vegas further? Yeah, Vegas is further than Colorado, so yeah. I've been to Vegas and like uh, down the Grand Canyon, but I don't know. There's just something about going to see the Continental Divide. It's beautiful. I, uh, so I've been living in Denver for about five, four or five years now. And, uh, the, it, it's a super pretentious thing. Um, but the thing that still irks me, not pretentious on my part, pretentious on the people of Colorado, um, is I have never been to, so before Colorado, I lived in South Dakota for six years. Mm-hmm. And South Dakota has a very large Native American population. Yep. So when you say the word native, that is, uh, in my brain, as a person who lived in South Dakota for so long, that automatically clicks like, oh, they're talking about 
you know, somebody who's a part of like the Lakota Sioux or, you know, an individual who's living on the reservations. Right. I came out to Colorado and I shit you not, like I was on the highway maybe like 20 minutes into Colorado, first time coming out here. And I see somebody uh, with a sticker that said Colorado Native on it. I'm like, huh, okay, whatever. And then like within the first hour of being here, I saw maybe like 30 or 40 of these stickers that said Colorado Native on it. And I'm like, what in the, like, there's not this, (laughs) there's not this many Native people who even live in South Dakota. Like, what is going on here? Like, and I figured out that, it is a thing that if you were born in the state of Colorado, because so many people have uh, started moving here, you know, from like California, just everywhere. Right. Um, people basically, if you were born in the state of Colorado, these people have taken on the name or the identity of like, Oh, we're Colorado natives. And I'm like, no, you are not shut the fuck up. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Like, like, like I said, as a guy who came from South Dakota, when you use the word native, I'm thinking like an, like a person right. of indigenous heritage. And here you are, Becky, with a stupid fucking sticker on your car because, oh, no, people wanted to move to Breckenridge. Like, shut up. <laughs> well, it it's funny because my uncle, uh, he he lived in North Carolina because that's originally where I'm from, from North Carolina. Um he he actually moved out to Colorado. Um, he doesn't live in Denver. He lives in a much smaller town, and I can't the name of it escapes me. But he uh, he works for a company, and he's all over Colorado and like North Dakota and South Dakota. I think it's like selling heavy equipment or something out there. But he loves it. So um, so yeah, he's he's a non-native. But I yeah. I to- I totally get what you're saying about that. Would be confusing is everything to see that jeez so uh what are you drinking this evening i uh, i have a mix of sake uh plum sake uh that's pretty thick that i mix with like a regular kind of like run of the mill sake i guess you could get it's whatever the world market had where i'm at they don't really have the gin i know they don't have the gin row no, um no, I know the no gin judgment world of, market's fun yeah, I, I, yeah. Well, I mean, I wish they had the Jinro type of. It's like a Korean type of sake that's plum, and if you've ever had a peach ring, it tastes just like a peach ring, but it's a plum, and it's delicious. But I cannot find it here in South Carolina for the to save my life. I've only been able to find it in Tennessee. My go-to for Korean drinks is uh, soju, which the best way I can describe it is. Uh is basically a super alcoholic uh, Capri Sun. (laughs) It's no joke. Jack's had it before. It it tastes like Capri Sun. And I mean, just like a small bottle um, that is like the equivalent of like a 12 ounce beer size. Like one bottle of that size gets me just trash. So it it packs a punch. Well, how does it taste with like the other Korean barbecue and stuff that you have there, or like with kimchi? Does it taste okay with it? With it, kind of taste? Oh yeah, like it's, with its with it being so sweet. So they have different flavors. I usually go with the peach one, but they have like peach, mm-hmm. strawberry, like a plain yogurt type one. Um, I think there's an orange one too, and like a sour apple. So mm-hmm. with me going with the peach one, it pairs very well with kimchi because you get that sweet and spicy mix. Gotcha. 
I think I think my favorite Korean food is <clears throat> I think they call it army stew or American soup. Basically what it is is chunks of hot dogs, spam, American cheese and ramen bricks all put together in a boiling pot of water and f- spiced with the ramen flavoring. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> it, it became really popular after the Korean War and after we kind of ditched those American bases, they kind of moved in and tried what we what they th- assumed was traditional American food and they turned it into a stew. I mean, honestly, and it's, it's, it's how could we e- do how could we do that to the Korean people? It's yeah, it's if that's not a war crime, I don't know what is. It's considered comfort food over there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that yeah, that makes sense cuz isn't there some somebody else that like their version of something was like I can't remember. I was reading or listening to something that they their idea of Italian food was like a hot dog with, <laughs> like spaghetti, like spaghetti noodles, <laughs> and I can't remember where that is now but it's it's in a different country i remember yeah it kind of harkens back to world war ii in the pacific theater how we left a shitload of spam uh, cans of spam on some of the pacific islands and that was it was considered like trash meat to our gis and they didn't really think much of it so they would trade it to the locals for cigarettes and whatnot but the locals thought it was the fucking bee's knees Oh yeah, and that, now if you go down to that region, there's a ton of different spam flavors. What's well, kind of like Hawaii too, because like Hawaii spam is such a key ingredient in like so much Polynesian cuisine um, in Hawaii, and that's got to be related to to World War II and having Pearl Harbor right there and everything. Man, early on in the pandemic, I had it in my head that I was going to cook the perfect fried Spam witch. How close did you get? (laughs) First off, I don't like your tone. (laughs) (laughs) Second off, eh? Like, I got as close as the just concept of Spam would allow me to come to perfection. (laughs) Not fucking close, but close in my heart uh what are you expecting from a chunk of meat that is made of you no know discernible part of anything right it's, it's literally just it's pork product they, it's mechanically separated pork product like, like it's literally everything they couldn't sell people it just tossed into a blender and made into one just disgusting chunk of hunk of processed meat like the its very existence is an affront to God Himself. <laughs> the only thing that I can think that could challenge that's that same. The only thing that I could think that could challenge it for being the the worst piece of meat ever is uh the canned whole chicken. Oh, hey, now that's a delicacy. I'm kidding, but I think I I think I can one up you. Um, Reed, are you familiar with? Tijuana Mamas. I've heard of them, but remind me again what they are. So they're gas station hot dogs. Oh God! Oh, I know. I I know. I've already lost you, but hear me out. They're um, it's all it's. They come in like the Slim Jim container, right? No, not even. Well, okay, yeah, they have the the same kind of wrapping, but they're thicker. 
giggity and <laughs> like there's chicken pork and beef all processed mind you into this little or into this sausage and it's like treated with spices and whatnot it's fucking disgusting Ugh. but i have a running joke with a friend where back in college i would like briefly leave to go get something from the student store the gas station across the street and i'd be like oh does anyone want anything and he said oh just get me whatever and i got sick of that so i tried to condition him to not say it by every time he said it i would just get him a tijuana mama <laughs> knowing, knowing damn well he wouldn't need it but that's continued for nearly 10 years and i still occasionally like leave a tijuana mama sausage i like hide it in his fridge at his house or i <laughs> put it in like the center console or cup holder as of his car and I was going to get creative. I was going to take a bunch of them, dice them up, and then freeze them solid, take all the ice out of his ice maker, and put that instead. Oh. So the, next, the next time he went to get a cold glass of whatever, he'd just be treated with a Tijuana Mama's chocolate oh. drink. I would murder you. That's now, terrible. I accidentally spilled the beans about it, but and he, he wasn't too pleased with the idea. But... Oh. There was, a no so. there was a notable instance last, not, not last year, but the year before in November where he got me a gift. Don't remember what it was. Doesn't really matter. But I bought a shitload of Tijuana Mama sausages and I put them in a compartment in my mailbox <laughs> and, and I left it there for like a day or two intentionally. And I was in Arizona at the time and I called him. I was like, oh, hey, Frank, I got you your Christmas gift a bit early. You know, I, I hit it in the compartment of my mailbox and he's like, Oh, that's so sweet of you. That's so nice. I'll be over to there to pick it up right now. I get a call 20 minutes later. Hey, Frank, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> well, whatever do you mean? Do you not like your gift? No. <laughs> uh, I will so how rotten were they when he opened that <laughs> when he opened them up? Oh, I, I don't even think he opened the packaging, but I'd like to imagine they were quite. Mm, yeah, he just immediately threw it away. <laughs> so inconsiderate. Uh, that I know this is another tangent, but it reminds me of I used to work at a a grocery store by the name of Piggly Wiggly. So oh, I'm sure yeah, I've, heard, I've heard of those. You've heard of them, yeah. What, I've they're been real. To them once. Yeah, they're they're kind of like a Win Dixie, um, I've but heard uh, of that too. yeah, the uh, one of the products that we carried was um, hog brains that was oh. in like a metal container, kind of like spam. It was on the same aisle, and one of those had busted open. <laughs> and there was like and it was in the summer so there was like Ugh. half like white chunky hog brains just like oozing out of this can it was disgusting so every time i think of spam i just think about there's probably some hog brains that are in that spam oh that we, definitely oh that we probably don't know about along with everything else from the hog that they couldn't <laughs> sell so dumb question that's not safe to eat raw, is it? I I can't imagine it. Would you be. know, I don't think any brain is 
safe to eat raw. You know, I would say it's probably not, but like, I don't understand though, because it was in a metal container and clearly said hog brains on it. And it had like a pull top, kind of like what like you have for like tuna in a can. <laughs> it, I know that sounds ridiculous, but I'm like, I would think someone would cook it because uh, my great grandfather, he would eat squirrel brains and eggs. So he, yeah, I know that sounds super weird, but like, might when be my, onto something. I know when my dad was growing up, uh, him and my uncle would like shoot the squirrels and then <laughs> they would like take them and they would boil the skulls with the brain still inside and then use a walnut cracker and crack the skull open, take the brains out and mix it with eggs. And that's how they would eat it. I think yeah. I'll take starving in the Arden forest over that. Yeah, I, I think I may too. I think I would rather eat Jeremy the uh, well, Jeremy the pigeon than <laughs> you know the the squirrel. Also, like Jeremy, who? Yeah, you, you admitted to a crime we don't know about. Yeah, well, it's funny too because like Jeremy means dear friend in French. Yep. So yeah. having a dear friend for dinner. Yep. Delicious pigeon. I still can't believe that they have Jeremy stuffed and on display at the Smithsonian. That's kind of like, uh, did they also do that with uh, Teddy Roosevelt's horse? I, <laughs> I thought you were about to say, didn't they do that with Teddy Roosevelt? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, mother, why I, don't you approve? <laughs> I mean, on, honestly, though, it to me, if Teddy Roosevelt wanted to be stuffed, if it wouldn't have surprised me. For him to be like, I want to be taxidermied and put in my museum. Because, I mean, think about it, as him as a naturalist. I mean, he did that with so many creatures. I mean, he, he had his he's, own little mini. He's just like the, the, he's like the welcome post to uh, Yosemite. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Teddy outside should have told you we're closed. <laughs> I actually, that picture of him um, in Yosemite, um, I got my friend, um, Chris, um, to do a portrait of him. That's actually back there behind me. Um, it's a really pretty watercolor of him, like just standing there. It's the, it's the same picture that's on the cover of the naturalist. Um, I can't remember the author's name, but it's, it's, it's that same picture. It's really, it's a great picture of Teddy Roosevelt, um, in front of the national parks. Do you think, uh, how do you think Teddy would have handled being with the Lost Battalion? Do you think he would have been a successful, or do you think they would have all uh, met their end? I think he would have been successful. I definitely probably would say that he probably would have tried to overtake the German line at least a couple times. I mean, Come on, boys, we're marching on Berlin. I mean, really? I mean, if you think about him, I mean, especially with like trying to go up San Juan Hill, and then you look at him later in life he had such like a zeal and a zest for like adventure and i mean even for action and i mean not saying that anything against him but like he was a brilliant politician i mean he was a decent strategist so i mean i i would say he'd definitely fight the germans head on he would definitely encourage more hand-to-hand -hand combat and honestly i would just envision him not shoot i mean i would imagine him be kind of being like whittlesey that he'd have a pistol in his hand, but then he would immediately drop it and start boxing and like punching <laughs> the nearest German. But I don't know. It's just, it's interesting to think about like what he would have done had he been younger. I feel like he might've, uh, 
you know, we reviewed All Quiet on the Western Front, the original one, not too long ago. And there's a scene where the main character in that movie goes back home on leave and he's talking with like his dad's friends. And there's a scene where they're like, now you see here, you just gotta quit this trench warfare nonsense and just march on Paris. And, uh, you know, the main character in that movie is like, that's not how this is going to work. And I, I have a deep respect for Teddy Roosevelt, but I have a, an image in my mind where Teddy Roosevelt would say something like that, where it's yeah. like, okay, we're not doing trenches anymore. Everybody gets a 1911. We're taking them. I know. Well, it's, it's so interesting when you look at World War One too, that like so many of those men died for like feet, a few feet of ground. And that was it. I mean, it was literally a stalemate the entire war, just about. And it came all about was like, who can maim and murder and basically blow you up the quickest to get you out of there so we can like take over your trench. I mean, yeah, so much for home by Christmas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, forgot, they forgot to tell the soldiers which Christmas. Yeah, that, that was the thing, too, is like, you know, with. Prussian always said, you know, we'd be home by Christmas, but you're right, Jack, he didn't say which Christmas. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's just, it's just, it's crazy to, to think about it. Like, oh, we'll be home by Christmas. And like, well, Christmas is coming on. I mean, you know, relatively for America being in there, we weren't in there that long. I mean, for the war at all. No, I, I mean, we, the, the war ended a few weeks after uh, this story occurred. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's crazy to think you know how much life was lost at the very end of the war for like you said for literal feet or yards or just for the the lines on the map to change so insignificantly and it's i think that brings up kind of like you know when we're talking about the scene where the germans asked them to surrender and you know he tosses the flag back and he says unacceptable um, you know, before that they're talking, they're like, uh, you know, they, they consider it for like half of a second, but then one of them's like, nah, they wouldn't be asking us this unless we had them licked, you know? Yeah. Um, and honestly, at this point that the, the Germans were, I mean, they had just, well, at the beginning of 1918, they had attempted their Kaiser Schlacht, which by the way, fantastic name for an offensive. Um, oh yes you know it was their last like okay we're throwing everything at the wall we're going to see what sticks and um you know it was a fearic victory you know they they didn't really get a lot out of it but they lost so much stuff that they didn't have the room to lose right um so by the time america is getting involved and they get the muse argon offensive going germany literally is on their last legs and i could totally see you know it totally makes sense for the germans to be like guys please for the love of god give up we don't have time for your bullshit right now like yeah well i mean it's true too because it, it's funny with germany because just giving them the option to surrender it, it's not something we would see in the second world war at all from the Ger from the germans that the Americans would face then they were more deadly in World War II, um, it would seem. But also, Germany had exhausted its men 
by that point in World War One, they were having like older, much older men come in and form units as well as young boys, which we would see that again in World War Two. But it's amazing to me looking at the historical maps at the amount of like, I mean, generations of men that just died. We're saying we're seeing this in France. We're seeing this in England, definitely in Germany, Russia. We're also seeing it a little bit in America at that point. But like, you know, some towns were literally wiped off the entire map in France. Like I've got maps that where we studied for the stretcher bearers that there was a town here. And when I go back and look at it now, it's gone. Or the town has moved a couple yards in a different direction because the town that was there when the battle occurred got wiped out. And then when the people came back after the battle, they rebuilt the town, but they didn't rebuild it in the same location. So I think that was kind of interesting to see. It's just, um, even too, if you look at um, some of the people who were in the Tour de France, before the first world war and you look at the like the winners how young they were at the last tour de france and then how old the winners were after the first world war it's amazing to see because like you're seeing like guys in their 20s winning um and this is pre this is like 1914 by 1980 some of the guys are like 53 like that Jeez. that's the you're you're literally seeing an age range like anyone that's from the age of like 18 to like 30 are dead they're gone and you're seeing men from the like the minimum age is like maybe 35 to 45 to 50 years old hence the lost generation exactly yep cuz the the ones that weren't dead were so heavily traumatized oh yeah i mean I think- uh, I think that segues pretty well into the thing that I know we had talked about a little bit beforehand, which was, you know, World War One and and every war does, but World War One claimed a lot of people even after the fact of, you know, the bullets stopped flying. Because um, Major Whittlesey, um, you know, he became a, a big name hero in America once the war was done because, you know, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. But aside from aside from that, um, the so the tomb of the unknown soldier that's uh, in Arlington, uh, you know, they originally chose the the way that they chose the unknown soldier for the tomb is a, is a very interesting story. I, I read an entire book on it, um, but like the the Spark Notes edition of it is basically they went to like three or four different cemeteries and they chose one unknown soldier from each cemetery they completely stripped them of any kind of like they made sure there was nothing identifiable about them like if there was they they just reburied them so the the four or five guys that they chose there was absolutely no way of identifying them. And then they literally burnt any documentation of which body came from which cemetery. And then they basically did like a roulette, like they put them in this tent, played a game of roulette with them. And then they had another World War One veteran walk into this tent and select one of the caskets. 
So it was, it was like a truly 100% random, we don't know who this person is. We will never know which cemetery he came from, all this stuff. So the, the World War I unknown soldier is a truly unknown individual. And uh, he was brought back to America and uh, Major Whittlesey was actually one of the individuals who was chosen to be a pallbearer for this soldier, which is, is a, a truly astounding thing to think about. Like, you know, with the amount of, um, you know, like respect and emphasis that America places on this particular soldier, the fact that he was one of six guys chosen to be the pallbearer for this soldier truly speaks to like how high of a status and image America held for him at this time. Right. Um, but he like for as good of a leader as he was and for as much as he took care of his guys, um, like he loved his men, but his love, <laughs> the love of his men ultimately was one of the contributing factors to his death. Cause there's a, there's a quote by him where he's like, I can't stand the idea of one of my men walking into my law office because I can't deal with what happened. And, uh, he ultimately ended up, uh, committing or it's not known hundred percent, but it, it's pretty much, there's not a better explanation, but, uh, he was on a, like a cross ocean trip and, uh, it's believed that he jumped overboard and committed suicide that way which is a really shitty and sad ending for such an impressive and heroic individual yeah the uh him going to that unveiling of the unknown soldier with him being a pallbearer because alvin york was also a pallbearer with him um and it bothered him a lot like you said that it bothered him because he was he told um McMurtry later that it bothered him because he was worried that was one of his men that was in the tomb of the unknown soldier, one of his men that he couldn't bring back. Um, it bothered him a lot about what happened in the war. And it, I mean, it was all PTSD related that he, you know, of course it wasn't diagnosed then. I mean, they called it shell shock, but it was PTSD, but he couldn't deal with it. And he, you know, he took his own life because of it they also said that he was having complications from uh, poison gas that he was constantly coughing and he would have these really long coughing spells oh i didn't never, realize he had yeah. uh, been exposed to gas yeah he got exposed to gas his whittlesey's brother who also served in the first world war was exposed to gas and he would actually die from his exposure to the gas years later uh once he made it home also alvin york got exposed to poisonous gas too uh, during his time and he had uh, breathing and lung problems later on in his life um, from the chlorine and the mustard gas that they were exposed to so yeah it just i don't know, man it, it's, just, it's sad that he he loved his men that much and he loved them so much that he just couldn't i think he couldn't deal with the fact he couldn't bring them all home and I think a lot of commanders um, deal with that in their own way. I mean, at least now they have, you know, the VA is really great about therapy and being involved and getting involved. 
um, and helping veterans deal with it. Um, so if anybody's listening to this that is a veteran, please reach out to your VA and try to talk to somebody because there is help. Um, my own, my wife actually uh, works with the VA. She, um, she's a psychologist and has actually helped many veterans from World War II on into Korea into modern day from Afghanistan and Iraq. So um, she knows how hard it is so she can relate to a lot of the stuff that like what I try to tell her about like what Whittlesey was experiencing and, and whatnot. She said it was definitely PTSD that he could not work through alone. Well, on that very uh, somber note, I think it's about time for us to actually uh, give this film a rating. So, uh, Jack, do you have Rotten Tomatoes pulled up? I do. This was from 2001, right? Yes, it was. Got it. So, do we want to give our score for this movie before I reveal this, or... Yeah, we should we should do that. Um, so, Reed, you I don't know if you recall, but we try and do a custom rating for each film. Um, we've done cockroaches, charges, scar, any any manner of things, stuff that we think truly exemplifies the uh, the film at hand. Um. Do we want to do uh, pigeons? Yeah, hey, there you go. Let's do pigeons. I like that. One to five pigeons. All right, One to let's five hear pigeons. Them. Jack, you first. Four out of five pigeons. Like, I kind of feel biased in this regard because the... Um, medium i watched this on <laughs> it was a very i'm dubious, sorry it is a very du- no, no no you're good it, it's a very dubious method of which i watched it but and yeah the zooms the zoom in and the action movie camera span pans the um iffy cgi on some of the fl- flamethrower scenes still it's a solid movie I mean, it's no all quiet on the Western Front, but yeah, it's well, that's high standard. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, let's hear yours. Well, let's leave it to Reed. How many pigeons do you give this film? I give it three Sheremies uh, out of out of five, and I, I hate to say that though, but I think it's just because like having being a history nerd and like realizing like how much is that technically it's not historically accurate that was showing up there it kind of irks me a little bit but i get it i get it what they were trying to do and it's still a solid war film i mean especially for being like a made for tv war film that kind of in the same vein as gettysburg that it it piques somebody's interest and if you can like take that and then do your own research by it i mean it's still a pretty solid movie but I'd still have to give it like three pigeons out of five with five being like it was historically accurate down to the T and, and everything. And it just wasn't quite there for me, even though I still love the film. Fair enough. Um, 
for me, I'm going to split the difference. I'm going to give this three uninjured pigeons and one share me pigeon. <laughs> so I didn't want to say three and a half pigeons. Um, <laughs> cause that, that just sounds a little, it seems a little tasty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So three uninjured pigeons, one severely injured p- pigeon that got an award. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. War hero pigeon. <laughs> Damn Skippy. Um, I you know this is an early two thousand film, and it looks and it like shows. it. It is a made for TV yeah. film, and it shows. But it's like you said, Reed. This is an excellent film to get somebody interested in the subject. It's also, it's just an interesting topic. Um, is a great action film there there are definitely lots of things that i think are left to be desired like i would love more character development of whittle c or any of the other officers um i would have loved a little more build up to the battle um or maybe just follow up after the battle but we get what we get for 2001 i will say it was an interesting thing to see to revisit made for TV films from this era. Cause mm. obviously we still have made for TV films. They're just, we call them by a different name. They're, you know, direct release to streaming. And I think it, it is great to see how much quality and improvement there is between this genre of film, because obviously 2001's lost battalion, it didn't get an Oscar, but it, we saw last year uh, Netflix's direct release, All Quiet on the Rest and Front, mm-hmm. won a shitload of them. And it is, it yeah. is as top tier of a production as any other Hollywood film. So it's it's great to see how much we've progressed. And this is a this is a good baseline film for that. So for those reasons, I, I give it the the 3.5 pigeon mark. Right, what is what, what does Ron Tomatoes say, Jack? So there is no tom- like critic rating for this for whatever reason. However, uh, there is. Were the critics Oscar- too good for this film? <laughs> uh, yeah, but however, there is an audience score of seventy nine percent, which yeah, okay, that sounds right. I mean, that's pretty solid. I mean, yeah, uh, I I could see it. Yeah, I, I could yeah. see that. I'm Especially not mad for like with that. Yeah, especially like you said, John, for a 2001 like made-for-TV film. I mean, it's not bad. Yeah. It is a pretty solid film. But um, b- before we call it, there's one thing I'd like to note. That um, anti-sniper scene is another scene that stuck with me. Where he's like, you know what? I think I can get the sniper. Hey, friend, run out there and go just get his attention. <laughs> Fuck you, dude. <laughs> uh, Talk about trusting your friend. Yeah. That was a great scene, though. And DP, I love you, but I would not trust you to shoot him. I wouldn't trust me, me either. <laughs> I, yeah, no, fuck you. I'm not running out to his attention. <laughs> Look at this fucking idiot. He actually believed me. <laughs> Oh, him? Uh, He's dead. I told him I could get the sniper if he runs out there. 
So uh, before we wrap up, Reed, I'll uh, I'll give the floor to you if you want to share any uh, social media accounts you got. Uh, I know plug your your current book. I know you said there's some projects you can't really speak about, but if you have anything that's coming up that you do want the people to know to keep their eye on, uh, have at it. Thanks, John. Yeah, uh, if anybody's interested, definitely check me out on Instagram. It's um, at Reed Beeman um, and also at Reed Beeman Art. I also have like a Facebook page, just Reed Beeman Art. You can find me there. Um, for the projects that I have currently that I'm working on now, uh, God, I wish I could say more about, more about it. But if, if you love horror, um, and especially body horror, definitely check it out. And I've got some more horror work coming out. Um, hopefully. Uh, I can't name any publisher right now, though. But hopefully in the next year or so, it'll be out or maybe before then. So there's talks. It's just that I can't say anything. Because yeah. no, paperwork. Yeah. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks. I'd definitely but, uh, check it out if I could read. <laughs> <laughs> does it have nice pictures? It does. That's, it has very that's, nice pictures. That's the great thing about comic books, Jack, is you don't have to be able to read. Sometimes there's boobies in there. Ooh. <laughs> I was disappointed by the lack of boobs in the stretcher bearers. Yeah, that was, you know, I, I didn't yeah that's one complaint it was like not enough diversity that's in it and i was like yeah i totally get that but you know yeah it's kind of hard don't get me wrong it probably would have been a shoehorned scene oh yes yeah i mean the only woman that's in there is the poor nurse that i put there at the end and then she looks a little too masculine so i was like well there you go (laughs) (laughs) yeah but we've uh we've greatly appreciated uh having you on uh like reed said go check him out on instagram follow him go to amazon purchase his book it's a great comic book i've read it myself can't speak highly enough about it um for next week uh we're going to keep it um a secret for now we have a special guest also for next week um the only hint we'll give is uh he is an actor from band of brothers so if you like band of brothers come check out our episode next week um as far as socials go you can find us at uh on instagram and facebook at the armchair commanders podcast uh we also have a youtube channel that's under history apprentice if you don't like the fact that it's under a different name uh tough luck um We've greatly appreciated everybody tuning in and listening. Uh, Until next time, I've been John. And I'm Jack. And I'm Reed. (laughs) I don't know if I was supposed to say anything or not. (laughs) We have not perfected this. We have this issue every week. We have a guest. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. I really, I really do appreciate it a lot for the, the reach out on social media and everything. And I mean, I'm definitely a listener and I'll definitely be tuning in next week to hear uh, whoever the mystery guest is. So sounds good until next time. Hope everybody has a great week. Bye.